we are in a series right now, speaking of the foundations of our faith, we're in a series called Foundations and Pillars. And what we're doing in this, in this series is we are looking at our gospel foundations as a church. Uh, really, what are the theological foundations of the gospel that we are built on? And then as we look at that, we're going to then turn to what, how do those foundations, those, those theological truths, what we believe about God and man and Jesus and faith, how do those things then influence and shape and form who we are and what we do as a church, our, our pillars, worship and fellowship, discipleship and mission? How does the gospel shape who we are? And so we are just taking time to revisit what it means to be a gospel-centered church, a church that is founded on the gospel and formed by the gospel. And so last week we began by looking at our first gospel foundation in the book of Exodus. We looked at Exodus 34, and, and in, in this passage we see Moses coming to the Lord, and, and he is praying to him, and he says to the Lord, show me your glory. He says, show me your glory. And even though the Lord is is unapproachably holy. He says, no man, no man can get near this mountain and live. No one can see me and live. And he's unapproachably holy. He's unattainably high. He, 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 he's not someone we can reach. He comes down to us, even though he is eternal and, and is the creator of all things. He grants Moses his request. He, he says, I will let you see a glimpse of my glory. And he hides him in a cleft of a rock and he um, he, he comes to Moses and, and reveals his glory to him. And do you know what Moses saw? I don't either. <laughs> I don't know what he saw either because Moses doesn't tell us what he saw. He saw something, but what he tells us is what he heard. Mo- Moses records what he heard when God revealed his glory. And what he heard was this. The Lord proclaimed his name. And he said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving sin and iniquity and transgression, and and by no means clearing the guilty, but punishing sin to the third and fourth generation. This is what God said to Moses when he revealed his glory. This is the glory of God. And we we realize that God's glory is ultimately not something external. It's not something that we see with our eyes. It's something that we behold in our hearts. It's it's who he is. This is who God is. God is the one true eternal holy God. He's a three-in-one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And his character is that he is both holy and loving. He is both merciful and and just. He is both righteous and gracious all at once. This is who God is. And this is the first foundation that we are built on as a church, that God is glorious. And if God is glorious and he's made us, then we were made for his glory. That's why we exist, is for him and to know his glory and reflect his glory. So this morning we're going to look at our second gospel foundation, the sinfulness of man. Though God is glorious, what the Bible says is that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you can open your Bible this morning to the book of Romans. Romans is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And I want you to see, if you look over to your right and my left on the wall, we have Romans 1.16 up here on the wall. Romans 1.16 is the key verse for the whole book of Romans. This is what Paul is writing about in this letter. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. 
This is what Romans is all about. 16 chapters that are about the gospel. And the gospel literally means good news. 16 chapters where where Paul is giving good news to the church and God is giving good news to us. It's good news of salvation. Good news of God's salvation to everyone who believes. That's what Romans is all about. But usually when there's good news, there's bad news first. Usually when you have a good message, it's being spoken into a bad situation, and it's, it's just the same with the gospel. Now imagine with me that you are a doctor who has a healthy young patient come to you for a checkup. He feels fine, he, he looks fine, everything seems good, but you discover that this patient has a, a life-threatening cancer eating him up from the inside out. Now the good news that you know as a doctor is that it is beatable that there, there are things that he can do to beat this cancer. But your first job as a doctor is not to tell him the good news. You, you don't come to him and, and just say, guess what, you can beat this. You know, no, no you, you come to him and the, your first job is to tell him the bad news. For all, all he knows, he's fine. For all he knows, there's, there's nothing wrong. And you need to convince him and show him that all is not well that if he doesn't do something, that his life is in danger. This is what Paul is doing in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. Like a good doctor, he is, he is showing us our diagnosis. He is showing us what's wrong. He's giving us the bad news that we need to know for the gospel to really be good news to us. And so this morning we're going to look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. Now, we're not going to go verse by verse through this passage, or else we would be here a long time today. But what I do want to do is, is to begin, I want to read through this text together. And, and it will take a few minutes, but I, think, I believe it's worth it. Reading this passage from beginning to end will help us feel the weight of our situation. And, and I want to ask you this morning, if you are someone who has believed the gospel, that believed in the good news of Jesus Christ, how good is the good news to you right now? Just think in your own heart. As you think about the gospel being good news, does it feel like good news to you today? Do you feel in your heart the goodness of the gospel? The truth is that sometimes we can grow cold to the gospel. We get used to the gospel. It doesn't stir us like it once did. I'm sure you can remember if you're a Christian a time where the gospel stirred your heart and you were overwhelmed with the goodness of the gospel. But we lose our grasp of that and it just becomes okay news to us or just just news to us. My prayer this morning is that as we reflect on the bad news, as we reflect on the bad news of human sinfulness, that the Spirit would lead us to taste and see the goodness of the gospel again. For his glory. So, with that said, let's read Romans 1 18 through Romans 3 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. 
But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, if you're so sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. Well, then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true that everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It's the bad news that we need to understand to see why the gospel is good news. And this morning I want us to just see three aspects of what Paul is saying about about the bad news here. Three aspects of human sinfulness that we need to grasp if we're going to grasp that the gospel is 
good news. And I'm gonna, I'll give you the three, and then we'll walk through them. First, we're all guilty. Second, wrath is coming. And third, our works will not help us. It's the bad news. We're all guilty. God's wrath is coming, and our works will not help us. So let's look at this first. We are all guilty. Every person has a guilty standing before God. And you may have picked up on this as we read that Paul, Paul is like a prosecutor building his, building his case against humanity in, in these chapters. He, he begins by looking at the, the, the Gentile world, the, the unbelieving world, those who are not Jews, those who have not received the scriptures. And he describes their unrighteousness before God. And here's what Paul says about the Gentiles. He, he says that in creation, and we understand this, in, in creation that they can see and they can perceive that there is a God. That, that his attributes are clear in what has been made. That, that every person in the world deep down knows as they look at creation that there is a God who is powerful and who created all of this. Now, they, they suppress that truth, is what, is what Paul says. They suppress it. They, it's like a beach ball that's underwater and it keeps wanting to come up and they suppress it and they push it down. Right? They, they don't let it come up. They don't, they don't let themselves face the reality that they know in their hearts that God created all things, that there is a God and he made everything. They suppress that truth and what they do instead is they exchange God for what is created. God is glorious, and it says they exchange the glory of the immortal God to worship created things. They don't thank God who is their creator, but instead they, they turn away from God. They reject God, and they worship created things. Now, now we see historically in, 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 the, in Romans 1 that he describes idols, statues, th- things that are created that they can look at and touch and see and they worship these things. But, but we too worship created things all the time, don't we? we? We worship money, we worship power, we worship careers, we worship families, we worship comfort, we worship stuff. We worship all of these things in exchange for the glory of God. It's who we are. And, and Paul says that God gives them up because of this idolatry, because of this exchange that they make. God gives them up to what they want. God says, I'm going to give you what you're asking for. I'm going to give you over to your sin. And he describes all of this unrighteousness in their lives. You saw at the end of chapter 1, you can look at it again, this list that he gives of all these unrighteous deeds. And and if you look at this list, there's no way you cannot find yourself in here somewhere. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, adventures of evil, disobedient to parents. Anyone gets that one, right? Ever disobeyed your parents? Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. These are all the, the acts of unrighteousness that Paul is saying. You see this in the world. You see this in, in those who are idolaters. And what Paul is saying is that those, all those acts have a fundamental root, and that is that they've exchanged God for something in creation. They, they, they have become idolaters, and, and all, these, all these sins flow from that. All these sins come from that. 
that they have refused to acknowledge their God. And therefore, Paul says, the Gentiles are guilty in their sin. And, and you know, Paul knows that, that he's, he has Jewish readers in his audience, and they are saying, amen, amen, amen. Yes, the Gentiles are awful people. We have the law. We are God's people. We are holy. And so Paul looks to them and he says, therefore, you have no excuse you who judge others, because even though you speak against those things, you do the very same things. And so in chapter 2, Paul builds his case now against his own people, against the Jews, against those who have received the Scriptures, those who have received God's law in the Old Testament. And he says, you do the very same things. You judge others, and you have this self-righteousness that says that you're better than them, but you are not better than them. You, you speak about the law, but then you break the law, and when you break the law, you blaspheme the name of God. And the world knows it. So that's what he's saying there in verse 24. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The world looks at the people of God, and they see that, that they are just a bunch of hypocrites. That they, that they, they preach all these righteous things deeds that we need to do, but then they don't do it. They, they still lie, they still lust, they still murder, they still steal, they still do all of these things, and ultimately it's the same problem. They worship themselves. They've exchanged God for something else, right? Paul brings up circumcision at the end of chapter 2, which, which was the mark that you were part of the people of God, and Paul says that doesn't mean anything if you break the law. It doesn't matter if you've been circumcised. For, for, for our day, it doesn't matter if you've been baptized, it doesn't matter if you're a member of a church. If you just have all these external realities in your life, but you're breaking God's law, that doesn't do any good to you. Those things don't matter. What matters is your heart. What matters is that God is going to judge you for your works, and you are guilty. You're a sinner. And so he, he builds his case against the Gentiles, and he builds his case against the Jews. The, the, the Gentiles have all this unrighteousness in their lives, and the Jews have all this self-righteousness in their lives, which is just a worse form of unrighteousness. And then in chapter 3, he, he brings his point home. He's, he's closing his case. He says, all are under sin, both Jews and Greeks. None is righteous. No, not one. Every person has a guilty standing before God. And if every person has a guilty standing before God, that means that you and I have a guilty standing before God. You are guilty, church, of idolatry, and you are guilty of self-righteousness. We have each exchanged the glory of God for something else in our lives. And we continually do it all the time. We run back to other things and we assign ultimate value to them. If you don't know what... what an idol is, if you don't know, is, that, is this an idol in my life? Ask, do you, do you live like something besides God is the most important thing? Do, do, do your actions glorify the Lord or, or are, they, are they somehow centered around something else that you say you need this or you want this and if you can't get it, then, then you're going to sin to get it. And if, you, and, and if you still can't get it, you're, you're going to be angry at God for not giving it to you. These are ways that you see the idols of your heart. 
You see, I'm not, I'm not living for God. I don't find my joy in God. I don't, I don't worship Him, but I, I worship other things. I assign them value. And if I don't get these things in my life, then I don't have joy. Then I don't have satisfaction. Then I don't have what I, what I say I need. And these things are idols. We've exchanged God for these temporary things. These things that aren't ultimate. These things that aren't glorious. These things that, that don't satisfy. And, and then we, at the same time, we live these self-righteous lives. We, we are so quick to judge others. We are so quick to see others' sins and to, and to, and to say that is wrong. And man, they, they, they need to do better. They need to grow. I can't believe that. We don't turn in on ourselves and say that we do the same things. We're hypocrites. All of us are. And therefore, we're guilty we have a guilty standing before God. And we, we saw last week in Exodus 34 what God said. He says, by no means will he pardon the guilty. That's what God says about himself. By no means will he pardon the guilty. And, and we're guilty this morning. Every one of us is. Just, just take a moment to consider that you are guilty before the Lord. And, and if you're a believer, if you have trusted in Christ, I want you to consider this morning that that even still, in your day-to-day life, you, you are guilty. You do do things that are against God's law. You do break His commandments. You do have real guilt in your life. Now, we're, we're going to look at how God responds to our guilt through Christ, but, but becoming a Christian doesn't mean that we don't have guilt anymore. We, we, are, we are just as guilty now as we ever were for our sins. When we, when we sin, when we worship idols, when we disobey God's word, we are guilty before him. He, he can charge us with wrongdoing, unrighteousness, transgression. That, that is who we are. And so this is the first aspect of the badness. We are guilty, and it leads to the second aspect, which is that wrath is coming. Wrath is coming. Because we are guilty, we all face God's righteous judgment. Now, when we think of the wrath of God, oftentimes that, that concept is, is twisted and distorted and it, and, and it seems like this old idea where these, these angry gods that fly off the handle and they, and they punish people for their sin just because just they're so angry. That's not what the Bible says about God's wrath. Just last week we saw, again, God is slow to anger. God, God, God is a forgiving God. He's a merciful God. He's a gracious God, but He doesn't pardon the guilty he is also a righteous God and a holy God. And so God's wrath, just a simple definition of what the Bible means by God's wrath, it is his righteous anger against evil. God's wrath is his righteous anger against evil. It, it, it is a good anger. It is, it is in place. It's not out of place. It's, it's perfect. Yet it's, yet it's real anger against evil and against sin. And, and in these chapters, Paul speaks of God's wrath over and over again. And he speaks of God's wrath in a couple of different ways. So I want you to look with me. Go back to verse 1, chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18, how it all begins. God, Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You notice here, what tense is this in? For the wrath of God is revealed. It's present tense, Right? Paul is saying here that there is a present experience of wrath in the world against, against unrighteousness. That, that already we experience somewhat of God's wrath. We, 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 we know God's wrath to an extent. 
And we could, we could conjecture some at what that might be. We, we think of natural disasters. We think of diseases. We think that may, maybe these things are God's wrath against us. But, but Paul doesn't make that connection here. He doesn't say when a hurricane comes, that's God's wrath. No, no he doesn't say that. What, what he actually says through this chapter, he describes their idolatry. And then he says, therefore, God gave them over to their sin. Over and over, he says, they exchanged God for something else. What is God's response? Therefore, God gave them over to their sin. God gave them over to a foolish mind. God gave them over to debased thoughts. God gave them over to the reality that they they can't tell what's right from wrong anymore. This is the present experience of wrath in the world, is that God gives sinners over to their foolish sinfulness. And, and we see it, and we feel it. We, we realize that, that the decisions people make, they, they ruin their lives. They, they destroy their families. They, they rip apart culture. The, 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 these things that, that they say are right are actually wrong and evil. And, and we look at those things, we look at those sins, and we say that, that they need to be punished for that. And that's true, but we realize, no, according to Romans 1, these things are the punishment. These things are God's present wrath. That God is giving people over to what their sin does. And he's letting sin have its course. Sin is destructive. Sin ruins us. It has consequences, and God gives us over to those. It's, it's, it's present wrath. Now, turn over to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 4. Paul's talking to the Jews now, and he's saying, Why do you judge when you do the same things? Do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? And, and here what we see is restrained wrath. Restrained wrath. Look at verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So here's the thing, in this life that we live, as sinners who are guilty before God, we do have present wrath. We experience God's God's wrath in different ways in our lives as he gives us over to sin, but we also experience God's kindness. Rain falls on the just and the unjust. We receive blessings from God. And, and Paul says that, that, when we, that, that the point of those blessings, the point of that kindness from God, is that God is being patient with you and calling you to repent. He, he, he's... He could respond right now with wrath for your sins, but he's, he's being patient. He's saying, I'm going to be kind to you to lead you to repentance. But what the Jews are doing is they're presuming on that. They're interpreting that kindness as God's not angry with me. I don't have a problem with God. And we see this in the world. People's lives are fine. God, God is not angry with me. There's nothing wrong. I'm not going to face wrath. I'm not going to face hell. And Paul says, no, God is being patient with you. But if you ignore that, what does he say you're doing? He says you are storing up wrath for yourself. That as you reject his kindness, the wrath that you're going to experience just gets higher and higher. More and more. You are storing it up for yourself on the day of wrath. So right now God is restraining his wrath, but there is still wrath against you. He's calling you to repentance. And this leads then to to how Paul speaks of future wrath in these verses. Look look at verse 6. He says, he will render to each one according to his works. 
To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress. According to verse 16, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. According to verse 5, there is a day of wrath that is coming, a day that God has set where his patience will be no more, but he will not restrain his wrath any longer, but he will release the full force of his wrath against guilty sinners. And here's the thing that Paul says, this wrath is deserved. It's deserved. The idea of wrath rubs us guilty sinners the wrong way. We think that seems a little extreme of God to do that. I mean, Adam and Eve, they, they, they ate a piece of fruit, and now they're going to suffer in hell for that crime? They're going to die for eating a piece of fruit? That seems a little bit extreme, right? And what the Bible reminds us of is, is that the punishment for sin is not just in the act itself, but it's in who it's against, who the act is against. And you think about God. He's a glorious God. He is infinite and glorious. He's the creator. He's the one true God. We, could, we can never get to a point where we say, this is how glorious God is, and no more. That would mean God is limited, that he's not God at all. But he is glorious and infinite in his holiness. And so if we sin against this God, what does that mean? If my son, who has really learned to hit people recently, goes and hits his sister, it's like, okay, you get a little reprimand for that. Maybe a spanking if you do it twice. If he goes and hits his mother, it's like this is a little more serious now. If he goes and hits his teacher in Sunday school, it's a little more serious. If, if he goes and hits a cop, does he keep going? The president comes to town, he goes up to President Trump and hits him, then we got a problem. <laughs> We've got a big problem. The, 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 the person against who, it, against who it is, is it changes the level of offense. Do you see that? Do you, we, we understand that. This is what the Bible says that when we sin against the glory of God, because God is infinite in his glory, the punishment must fit the crime. And if God is infinite in his glory, then, then our punishment needs to be eternal. And, and, and if there was a point where God stopped punishing us, then he would be declaring about himself, that's how glorious I am. No more. So to uphold his righteousness, to uphold his, his justice, he gives wrath. And, and I want you to see how Paul speaks of this. In chapter 1, verse 32, Paul says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Then I'll only do them but give approval to those who practice them. So he says there that they know that those who practice these things deserve death. It's ingrained in their hearts. They know it. Why do we all fear death so much? Because we know what death means. We know that death means judgment. Chapter 2, verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Chapter 3, verse 8. Their condemnation is just. And then chapter 3, verse 19. Every mouth will be stopped. And the whole world held accountable to God. 
So picture that day, judgment day. We are before God. He pronounces on us. It says, you are guilty, and the verdict is eternal condemnation. In that moment, no one will say, but God. No one will Every mouth will be shut. Every person will accept what he says. Because we're going to see his glory. It might not make sense to us now because we don't see him for who he is. But when we see his glory, see his holiness, and he shows us our sin, we're going we're to say, you are right, God. This punishment is right. I deserve this. Our mouths will be stopped. We won't make any excuses. So this is the bad news. We are guilty and wrath is coming. And the third aspect is that our works won't help us. There's nothing good that we can do to change our situation. Look again at chapter 2, verse 6. Paul, Paul says this. He says, God will render to each one according to his works. So, so how, how does God judge? He judges according to works. He says that those who, who persist in good works, he will give eternal life. But to those who, who are evil and disobedient, there will be wrath and fury. In 2, 12 through 16, Paul makes a point about how God will judge and what basis will he judge our works. He says that those who don't have the law, that is, those, those who didn't receive the Ten Commandments, those in the world who, who don't know anything of the Scriptures, they're, they're, they're going to perish apart from the law. And what he means by that is that all people, all of us, without any direct revelation from God, we have a moral intuition, don't we? We have a sense of right and wrong. We have an oughtness of what is good and what is bad. And even that we don't obey. Even that we don't listen to. And we will be judged according to that law that is inscribed on our hearts, our conscience, will be judged according to that. And, and for those who do have the law, it's not good news because it just raises our responsibility, but we still disobey it. He says we're going to be judged by that law. So, so the more revelation we have from God, the greater our judgment is going to be because we disobey the law constantly. So he's going to judge according to works, but, but we, ha- we have these laws and we don't keep them. And then in chapter 3, verse 20, Paul concludes his whole argument with this, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. So so whether it's our moral conscience that we disobey or whether it's the written revelation of God, the reality is that God has given us this law not so that we can keep it and be saved, but to show us how desperate we really are for a Savior. We cannot keep it. Our works are not good enough. You you get someone who, say someone comes to your house and and steals your car. They steal your car and and, and you, you, you... catch them as they're driving away and you get in your other car, hopefully you have another car to catch them with, and you, you run after them, you drive after them, and you catch up to them and you, and, and you catch them right hand, you call the police, they're, they're going to court. So, so good job, you got your car back. They're in court, they're in court, and this, this guy says to the judge, listen, yes, I stole the car, yes. But I'm a really good guy. I love my wife. I love my kids, I, I give to charities, I, I coach the baseball team, I, I, I do a lot of good things. Let, let's just forget about this whole car stealing business. And the judge says, oh, you're, you're right, you're, you're a great guy, you're, and just, just come on my lawn for me and we'll be good. No, no, you, what would you feel in that moment? You would, you would say, injustice, this guy stole my car, this guy needs to be punished for, that, that, that's the sense we have, Right? 
But we don't, we don't apply that with the Lord. We don't apply that when we think of eternal judgment. For some reason, we convince ourselves that God is weighing our good deeds against our bad deeds. And if we do enough good to outweigh the bad, then God will accept us. That is not justice. And if that's who God is, then God is not a just God. He's not a glorious God. If we break God's righteous law at one point, we are guilty. It doesn't matter how much good we've done. Our works won't help us. We are helpless to change our situation through good works. This is the bad news of human sinfulness. We are guilty, wrath is coming, and works will not help us. Like a good doctor, Paul gives us this bad news, not to leave us there, but to help us see the good news, to help us see how much we need a Savior. Jesus himself, he came and he said that he came not to heal those who are well, but to heal the sick. And what he meant by that is not that anyone is well, but that he he comes to those who know they need him. So this morning, do you see your sickness? Do you feel the reality of your situation in your sin? Well, then here's the good news. This, This is the good news of the gospel. In Romans 3, starting verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Hear the good news this morning, church. We are guilty. We are guilty. But God has made a righteousness available to us. God has made his own righteousness available to us. Jesus Christ came and he lived a sinless life, a righteous life. And God makes that righteousness that is his alone, he says, it, it is yours as a gift. Even though you're guilty and even though I should punish you in your guilt, I'm going to make Christ's righteousness available to you. I'm going to impute it to you. I'm going to count it as yours. We are guilty, but righteousness is available from God. Even more, wrath is coming on our guilt, but before that day of wrath comes, God has already sent Jesus Christ to come. And Jesus Christ came into the world. He said, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And look at this word in verse 25. He says, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation means a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. So, Think about all that wrath that you store up. Every time you sin, every time you sin, you're storing up wrath, getting higher and higher and higher against you. When Jesus died on the cross, he bore all that wrath. He took it all and he paid for it. He took the condemnation that you and I deserve on the cross. He was a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. So now when that day of wrath comes, through him, we don't face that wrath anymore because he took it for us. He intercedes for us before the Father. He says, I've borne that wrath for them. And so we don't face the wrath that we deserve for our guilt. 
And then what's even more, God doesn't say, he doesn't say, listen, my, my son bore the wrath for you, and, and there's a way out, but you need to do all these things to get access to that. He doesn't say, you, you just got to make sure that you, you go to church this much, you get baptized, you, you're a good person, you, you don't get divorced, you, you don't get drunk, maybe once, but no more than that, right? He, does, he, doesn't, he doesn't give us this list of things to do. He says to be received by faith as a gift. Our works won't help us, but salvation is not by works. It's by faith. Faith alone. This is the good news that we are guilty, but God makes his righteousness available. We faced wrath, but Jesus has borne that wrath. Our works can't help us, but God lets us be saved by faith alone in Christ alone because his works are enough. He has done it all and he has paid it all. That's what we celebrate this week. This is the good news of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation and we need to be saved. So this morning, if you are here and you are listening to this and you are thinking to yourself, I am guilty. I do face God's wrath. And I understand that I can't do anything about it to change my situation. This morning, right right now, you can receive this gift by faith. In, in this very moment, God offers His Son to you. God offers His righteousness to you. God, God comes to you and, he, and he, he says that though you deserve wrath, I am a gracious and merciful God. I am a forgiving God. I am a loving God. I, I will pardon you if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you turn from your sins. And so this morning you can do that. As we sing today, as we respond, you can do that. You can, you can come to the Lord and, and say, I, I agree that I'm guilty. I agree that I deserve to die. I agree that I can't do anything to help myself and I believe that you gave your son to save me from my sins. And I give my life to you and I give my heart to you and I put my trust in him. Pray you will do that this morning. God's, God's patience does not last forever. And we do not know how long we have. And so I pray that this morning you will put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now if you have done that, then this morning I want to call you to three things. Praise God for the good news. This morning, praise Him for good news in your life. Confess to Him that this is the best news. Remember as we sing what you deserved, who you were, what your situation was, and that God has changed everything. We, We could not overstate what God has done in our lives. We faced eternal wrath, and God has given us eternal life with Himself. Let's praise Him for the good news of His grace. Let's live in the freedom of God's grace. Our works can't help us. They can't save us, but now they don't have to. We we do not live our lives trying to be good enough for God. He has received us completely. He has justified us, and so our works are no longer the basis of our relationship with Him. Our works are the way that we love Him. Our works are the way that we worship Him, and there's freedom in that. We can come to Him when we sin and receive forgiveness, and then we can live for His glory, not because we're trying to be good enough, but because He's done it all for us. There's freedom in His grace. And and then church, proclaim this news. Proclaim the bad news. 
and the good news to everybody you can. Do you realize if all are guilty, then that means every single person you interact with every single day is guilty. If all face God's wrath for their guilt, that means every single person that you interact with every single day will face God's wrath and they can't do anything about it unless they come to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And we need to be good, skilled physicians who come to them and don't just say, get saved from through Jesus and just do a quick prayer where they don't even understand what they're doing. We need to come and say, do you realize the bad news? Do you realize what your situation is? Do you realize that there is a holy God that you have sinned against and that you face his wrath? We need to proclaim the bad news so that they see and are convinced that they need the good news. And we need to proclaim that urgently to everybody we can.